This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 15th, 2013. I'm Christy Hamilton. And I'm Sarah Crespi. This week on the show, we have stories on the origins of domestic dogs, a new contender in solar technology, and adaptive fitness after 50,000 generations. A few thousand generations into the experiment, two lineages diverged that have now been coexisting for tens of thousands of generations within a single flask. Plus, a few stories from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Sometime between 10,000 and 32,000 years ago, carnivorous wolves were tamed to become our best friends. But exactly when and where dog domestication first took place has been at the heart of a long-standing debate. Robert Wayne describes to Linda Poon a new genetic analysis of ancient canine remains that points to Europe as the origin of modern dogs. This, I think, is a new perspective on dog origins because we focus our research on ancient material. So it's a kind of ancient DNA perspective. And really, to our surprise, it suggests that the origin of modern dogs was from Europe, not from the Middle East or East Asia, and that it occurred about 20,000 years ago. So it places first dogs in Europe with hunter-gatherers and in that context changes the scenario of dog evolution, we feel. All right, so there's been several different hypotheses about where dog domestication first took place. Why is it so difficult for scientists to come up with a consensus about the origin of dog domestication? Well, I think there are a lot of complexities here because if we just view the morphologic data, the archaeological data, you know, the first dogs probably looked a lot like wolves. So Mm -hmm. it's really hard to tell when the beginnings of domestication took place. So that's one problem. Another problem with the genetic data is that we're focusing mostly on genetic diversity, and genetic diversity has lots of different influences. Just the idea of the highest diversity being the place where dog domestication took place is a reasonable one. I mean, it works for humans. We know that humans in Africa have the most genetic diversity, but if we look around modern human societies, you know that we're well mixed to various degrees. So that mixture, if we just looked at the United States and looked at genetic diversity, would be very high. So that kind of movement of people around the globe affects genetic diversity, and likewise, and dogs, the movement of dogs through trade to various places 
affected levels of diversity. So it's hard to take that out of the situation as we could with humans, for instance. Another problem is that it's affected by admixture between local wolves and domestic dogs. So Middle Eastern wolves cross with the dogs that are there. They pump in more genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. And lastly, there's a problem with just the different breeding structures around the globe. You know, dog breeds are very inbred, but elsewhere dogs are free-living and highly admixed and have large populations, so their levels of genetic diversity would be higher. So it's hard just to use genetic diversity to infer dog origins. Our study is different in that we take a historical perspective. We ask what populations of ancient wolves seem to be closest to modern domestic dogs. The reason it was a puzzle for so long is because we were looking at modern wolves. They're not closest to domestic dogs. It's mm-hmm. some ancient population of wolves that we think resided in Europe that was more directly ancestral. So can you talk a little bit about both your sample and your method? Well, the method involves ancient DNA, and so the ancient DNA we can extract from archaeological material is already very damaged and fragmented. Mm -hmm. So we have to use a special approach to try to capture or recover that ancient DNA. It's a very similar approach to that which was used with Neanderthals and discovery of Denisovans, a very distinct type of ancient humans. In a sense, we take a mixture of DNA from ancient material that has not only what we call endogenous DNA from the specimen, but also has all kinds of contaminating DNA, bacterial DNA, and we extract from it just the mitochondrial genome that resided in that archaeological material. That's what we sequence. And that then is compared to modern samples of wolves and dogs. So what's special about the mitochondrial DNA? Well, you know, it would be preferable to have both the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome sequenced, but the mitochondrial genome within the cell, you know, the mitochondria is a separate organelle outside the nucleus, so it's floating around the cell. There are often hundreds of mitochondrial genomes for every nuclear genome, so that means it's more abundant, and the mitochondrial genome evolves very quickly. It has a higher evolutionary rate, so it gives more resolution, in a sense, to the study of ancestry. So how do your findings point to Central Europe as the origin? What we did is we extracted DNA from about 10 ancient wolves, ranging in ages to over 30,000 years ago, and similarly about eight ancient dogs. And we then made a phylogenetic tree, an evolutionary tree of those sequences with modern dogs and wolves. We found that these ancient European canids, dogs and wolves, were often positioned in a place in the tree that was directly clustered with uh, modern domestic dog diversity. There's essentially four big groupings of modern domestic dog mitochondrial DNA diversity, and for each one of those groupings, it was either an ancient dog or an ancient wolf from Europe that was directly ancestral or clustered Mm -hmm. with modern dogs. And in one case, actually, one of these groupings, the clustering was with modern wolves from Europe. So all we could say is there's no evidence for ancestry of modern dogs from anywhere else. You know, the wolves from Middle East and wolves from Asia weren't clustered with these modern dog clades when we looked at the complete mitochondrial DNA sequence. So it was an inescapable conclusion for us. I think the archaeologists long maintained that Europe seemed to be the place where dogs are domesticated because the oldest domestic dog material comes from Europe up to 36,000 years ago. So there's also a debate about when dog domestication first took place. And like you mentioned before, your study puts it at 20,000 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about whether this was during the emergence of agriculture or during the hunter-gatherer culture? 
it is before agriculture and before the development of agrarian societies, perhaps beginning about 10,000 years ago. So it places dogs in the context of hunter-gatherers in Europe that were likely preying on large game, mammoths, horses, and these proto-dogs, these wolf-like dogs that probably began following humans around, taking advantage of carcasses potentially that they left behind. It puts domestication in that kind of context, which is much more easy for me anyway to understand because dogs are the only large carnivore ever domesticated, and it's hard for me to envision how you would just bring a large carnivore into the confines of human society very easily. But if it was a long process of acclimation where the first dogs were just living in the kind of human niche and alongside humans and at some distance from them and taking advantage of carcasses and then gradually being incorporated into human society more closely over time, then I can stomach it much more easily. I can't really take the scenario whether they were just readily domesticated as we've done, say, with horses or even the kind of cat scenario. All right, so in the past, it seems that each study just adds another layer of complexity to finding the origin of dog domestication. How close are we to finally settling the debate? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but I still think, to some extent, the three hypotheses about origins, Middle East, East Asia, Europe, are still on the table. And we're adding layer by layer important results. And in terms of settling the debate... There's still much more to be done, of course. This is the way of science, but we haven't analyzed the ancient nuclear genomes of these dogs, and we're in the process of doing that. And if you follow the Neanderthal story, what happened first was that there was a sequencing of the mitochondrial genome, and that led to a reconstruction of the evolution of modern humans and relationships with Neanderthals. And then that followed with nuclear sequencing that kind of filled out the story to some extent. And I think that's where we are with domestic dogs. Like Neanderthal, I think this will set the stage for most of the story, the mitochondrial DNA data. The mitochondrial results of Neanderthals were later really borne out with the nuclear sequencing. The only discovery of consequence was admixture between Neanderthals and Denisovans and humans. And I think we may discover that in the nuclear data. We already have some indication that domestic dogs and wolves interbred to various degrees throughout the history of domestication. And I think those signals will be in the nuclear data as well. All right. Well, Robert Wayne, thank you so much. You're welcome. Robert Wayne and colleagues report on the origin of dog domestication in this week's science. You can also read a related news and analysis story on canine origins at www.sciencemag.org. Evolutionary biologists talk about fitness peaks, high points on the landscape of genetic possibilities, atop which an organism is optimally suited for its niche. But do organisms ever reach their peak? I spoke with Richard Lenski about what he has seen in asexually reproducing bacteria after 50,000 generations. In this study, what we've been looking at are the dynamics of populations of bacteria as they evolve and are adapting to a constant laboratory environment, which they've been doing for 50,000 generations. And we've known for a long time that their rate of improvement slows down over time as though they're approaching an upper bound, or what evolutionary biologists like to call a fitness peak. But now with the very long-term time series that we've accumulated, we see that these trajectories of adaptation don't really seem to have an upper bound, but are better fit by what's called a power law, something that increases 
more and more slowly over time, but doesn't really go to an upper limit. So these results suggest that even in a constant environment, fitness can increase for a very, very long time. Okay. Well, let's start off with the setup that you use to obtain these results. What is the long-term evolution experiment? So this is a, an experiment to watch the process of evolution in action and doing it in a very simple laboratory setting so that we can address really very basic and rather abstract questions. So how reproducible or repeatable is evolution? How long can fitness keep increasing? How high can it go? And those kinds of questions. And the experiment started in 1988, so it's a little over 25 years old now. There are 12 populations of E. coli that all started from the same ancestral strain. They live side by side in the incubator in little tiny flasks. It's a very simple environment. There are no other species present. And every day the bacteria grow until they run out of glucose and then sit there until the next day when we transfer them into fresh media. So this experiment is now over 50,000 generations. And the most obvious advantage of using bacteria for experimental evolution is this speed of generations. But an even more important feature, as I've realized over the years, is that we can freeze the bacteria. Right, and you split off different generations? Yeah, so at different time points along the way, we freeze the cells down, and the frozen cells are actually viable, so we can bring them back from the freezer. We can resurrect them, revive them, and that allows us to directly compete organisms that lived at different points in time. So in effect, it allows us to do time travel, and that is the dream of, I think, any evolutionary biologist. Definitely. This result is one in a long line of insights gleaned from the experiment. Can you talk about some of the major findings derived from this ever-growing data set? Yes. I like to call this the experiment that keeps on giving, because between this 25 years and 50,000 generations, the timescale of it, the bacteria have been extremely creative doing interesting things. And of course, with uh, amazing students and colleagues over the years, they've asked kinds of questions that I hadn't imagined. So just a few of the results that I could mention, we've seen many, many cases where evolution is strikingly reproducible. That's called parallel evolution. And these parallel evolutionary outcomes are things that we can see at the phenotypic level. For example, all 12 lineages produce cells that are much larger than the individual cells that the ancestor made. Hmm. And we also see this parallelism extending even down to the genetic level. One of the neat things about a 25-year experiment is that new technologies come along. So whole genome sequencing didn't even exist 25 years ago. And then one final other important observation is that although we see this background of a lot of reproducibility in the evolutionary outcomes, different populations do behave differently. And in particular, one of the 12 populations, only one of them, evolved a new trait that is the ability to grow on a second carbon source that's been present besides the glucose. There's citrate in the medium. And E. coli as a species has been described as not being able to use citrate as a growth resource because it can't transport it into the cells, but one of the 12 populations, after about 30,000 generations, cracked that nut and so has sort of opened up a new evolutionary branch, as it were. And I think you have one colony where there's actually these two different varieties living together in an ecosystem. So actually, we now have multiple populations a little bit like that, but in particular, there's one that we discovered early on because the visible colonies of the bacteria look quite distinct, where Oh, a few thousand generations into the experiment, two lineages diverged that have now been coexisting for tens of thousands of generations within a single flask. 
Really interesting. Well, getting back to the recent work, you looked at fitness over 50,000 generations. How did you define fitness in this context? So in this study, when we talk about fitness, we're not saying who's going to be a better competitor in the wild or anything like that. What we're asking is, in the same conditions, under the same environmental setup as the long-term experiment, how much have the evolved bacteria improved relative to their ancestor? And because we have these frozen samples of the ancestor and from these time points along the way, we can actually compete these organisms head-to-head that lived at different points in time in the past. And then the metric that we use is we simply, as they're competing head-to-head, we can measure the relative growth rates of the evolved bacteria from a particular population against the ancestor. And so it really is something that comes very close to the definition of fitness as a theoretician would want to measure it. So when you say growth rate, you mean how many generations per hour or per day or whatever like that? Yeah, the the word generations gets a little complicated, but you can think of it as the ratio of the number of doublings that they achieve, not when they're growing maximally, but when they're competing head-to-head with Mm -hmm. one another in the same environment where the long-term experiment has continued. Okay. So were you surprised in this finding that there was no peak or plateau in fitness? Will these guys keep growing forever? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a tricky one to answer because in some ways, whether I was surprised or not depends on when you ask me. So for years, I did think that the populations would reach a plateau. With some of our earlier data, we would fit models that had a hard limit, an asymptote to those data. But when we did that, and then later on, the experiment would continue and we'd measure new data, we'd find that "Ah, the bacteria are growing faster than what we thought was the upper limit. But of course, different people were doing those experiments and at different points in time. So this paper, what we did with a very dedicated, smart graduate student leading the way, Mike Weiser, he pulled entire time series from the freezer and measured everything at once. So it's not comparing old data with new data, but it's taking all this time series and doing an experiment sort of across time. And what we found is that when we fit different models to his fitness data, is that models with and without an asymptote both do a very good job of fitting the data, but this power law that doesn't have an asymptote does a much, much better job. And it does a better job not only in terms of fitting the data, but in terms of predicting the data. And by predicting the data, what we did is that we could ask the curve-fitting algorithm to use, say, only the first 20,000 generations of data when we used the hypothesis that there would be an upper bound and then asked, did it predict the later data out to 50,000 generations, it fails miserably because, as we had seen before, the bacteria go beyond this sort of hypothetical asymptote. Mm -hmm. But when we use this power law that doesn't have any asymptote, 20,000 generations of data or even just 5,000 of generations, it predicts very, very well the continuing rise out to 50,000 generations. And what about this happening forever? I mean, it would surprise me that they could be more and more fit to infinity. Yeah, well, infinity is a long time. (laughs) So I agree completely with that. But what we did in our experiment to get at this, 50,000 generations is already a pretty long time, a nice long experiment. But we did a thought experiment, which is what we said was that this 50,000 generation experiment, because of the speed of bacterial replication, is something that I as a scientist have been able to do in my scientific lifetime. What if I were to pass that on, the experiment, to another scientist who would do it for 50,000 generations and another scientist for 50,000 generations? And what if there would be 50,000 generations of scientists each doing this for 50,000 generations? 
So if you do the calculations, that comes out to about two and a half billion generations for the bacteria, and it would take about a million years to do that experiment. And when we project these power law predictions from the data that we do have, you know, we can ask, does it make some crazy value that says the bacteria are going to be doubling in two seconds or something? And what's striking is, no, actually, it predicts them within the range of growth rates of bacteria that have been observed, although admittedly, those bacteria are growing in a much more nutritious, nutrient-rich environment than what we're doing. The upshot is I don't think this experiment's likely to go for a million years, but it has made me realize that this experiment and the fact that we can get into sort of a predictive framework, I would really love to see this experiment continue for several more scientific lifetimes. So continuing it sounds like a really good idea, but do you think this finding is generalizable to, say, sexually reproducing organisms or even asexually reproducing ones that are under less controlled conditions? So with sexual reproduction... One of the key ideas going back decades to some of the early population geneticists or even early geneticists about sexual reproduction is that an advantage of sex is that if two different beneficial mutations appear in a population, sex can bring them together and combine them. And there's reason to think that that will move populations faster, that they'll evolve and adapt faster. And so if there really are fitness peaks or plateaus, it should get them there sooner But I think our results are kind of calling into question, is this idea that there really is some optimum that's given the number, the size of genomes, the number of possible genotypic combinations is, you know, greater than the number of atoms in the universe, will they ever really get to these peaks or plateaus and in what time scale? So I think with sexual organisms, the mathematics is going to be very different. But I think this fundamental question of whether there really exists anywhere over a reasonable time scale that you'll get to an optimum is, I think, still an open question. So it's also true that evolutionary biologists think about natural selection in the real world as a never-ending process because the environment is always changing, including predators and competing species and so on. And so that fact that the real world is a changing environment and not sort of this artificial constant world we've made in the lab, that's a really important issue. It doesn't really tell us the answer in the baseline case. What would happen if the world did not change? And at least to my mind, science often progresses by coming to grips with these special cases that don't necessarily exist outside the lab. I mean, so physicists are creating cyclotrons and so on, very special conditions, not because, oh, that's what typically exists out in nature, but instead because it allows us to isolate particular processes. And it's really hard to make sense of the complicated, constantly changing world around us if we can't make sense of these special, really simple cases. Richard Lenski, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much, Sarah. Richard Lenski and colleagues write about the latest results from the long-term evolution experiment in a Science Express report this week. You can read their article at www.scienceexpress.org. And in the issue, you can find a related news story on the impacts and insights of the experiment over 25 years at www.sciencemag.org. For decades, solar technologies have made slow and steady progress. But recently, a new solar cell contender with plenty of promise has hurtled into the mix. The latest competitor takes the form of modified perovskites, a class of compounds that have a particular crystalline structure. Many researchers deem the material a ray of light for the future, 
a real possibility in making solar power cheap enough to compete in the marketplace. But researchers must confront some very large obstacles before they can flip that possibility into an actuality. To learn more, I spoke with Robert Service. Perovskites are a class of compounds that have a particular crystal structure to them. So many solids form crystals, and perovskites just have a particular complex shape or formation of the way the compounds come together to form those crystals. And just as a bit of background, there are hundreds known. There's many different kinds of perovskites, and probably the most famous ones are the copper oxide superconductors. These are the high-temperature superconductors that were discovered in the 1980s that made a big splash at that time and continue to be a popular vein of research. But in this case, we're talking about perovskites that are salt-like compounds, so ionically bonded compounds like Sodium chloride is a salt, but in this case, these are much more complex salts, and they come together to form these complex structures, and these are semiconductors. What was interesting was, even though people had known about these perovskites for quite some time, it's only been very recently that they've been sort of discovered as a pretty good solar cell material. Right. So the debut of perovskites into the solar community, as you said, began innocuously enough, but since then, breakthrough after breakthrough has sort of been ramping up interest in this renewable energy possibility. So can you describe some of these leaps you've seen? Sure. So the first published report was by a group in Japan only in 2009. And that time they were working with dye-sensitized solar cells and they had layered a perovskite around the inorganic material and they were going to use that perovskite as a light absorber and then hopefully kick the electrons over to the inorganic. So when people talk about solar cells, they talk about an efficiency. And basically what they're talking about is what amount of the energy in sunlight do they actually convert to usable electricity? And so in this case, they got 3.8%. And, you know, that's fine. It's a nice little research result. And they were excited about it because no one had ever used perovskites before. But commercially, it's not all that interesting because the silicon solar cells you can buy for your rooftop, which are fully engineered panels and what have you, those are already typically around 20% efficient. So 3.8 isn't that great. But in just the matter of a couple of years, it went from 3.8 to that was doubled to around almost 7, then again up to 10, and then... This year, it's gone up to 15. So a couple of different groups have managed to get it up to 15% efficient using some different techniques that they have for making the perovskites and utilizing them. And so one thing they've learned along the way is that these perovskites are not only quite good at absorbing sunlight, but they're actually serving as a really good semiconductor all by themselves. And so that wasn't really appreciated or realized initially. They thought you had to have a different semiconductor in there to conduct those electrical charges. But turns out the perovskites are doing just fine with that. And so a lot of the research now is just kind of getting rid of some of the old stuff that isn't needed quite so much anymore and then trying to figure out how to optimize it and do even better. Because going from 3.8% efficiency to 15% efficiency in just the span of four years is pretty much unheard of in the solar cell community. Most solar cells, as they're developed, it's a tough job to optimize these devices. And so typically the progress is not very fast. So Mm -hmm. it takes decades to make these things better and better and better. And these things are growing by leaps and bounds already. Right. And if commercial silicon cells already deliver around 20% efficiency, what do the perovskites offer that's different from what's already on the marketplace? 
Well, you know, from a research standpoint, they certainly offer a new avenue to explore. So one hope is that they can do even better than 20% efficiency. And one reason for that hope is they have extremely good crystalline qualities. A lot of times when people grow crystalline materials, you get all kinds of defects in there. You know, an atom here is out of place, or, you know, they form grains, and, and so it's not one perfect crystal, but you get lots of little crystals, and the boundaries between the grains mess things up. And so what happens is charges try to whiz through these materials. They get stuck on a defect here or a grain boundary there, and when they get stuck, they can lose their excess energy, and they can just basically dissipate that energy as heat. And that's not what you want. You want the energy to become an electric current and therefore do work. And so the perovskites are great because they have this beautiful crystalline quality, and they're getting it even though they are just formed out of solution. So it's a very low-temperature, low-cost kind of approach. These materials are very readily available. They're easy to make. And normally when people grow high-quality crystalline silicon or high-quality gallium arsenide, which is a very advanced solar cell material, it takes extremely expensive machinery to do that and high vacuum conditions and a lot of other processes that add to the cost. So one hope is now if you can get really good crystalline quality out of a material you can just grow right out of a liquid, that's great. So there's a lot of hope there that they'll do perhaps as good as silicon or maybe even better. We were talking about the unique structure of perovskites, and so does that contribute to their diffusion length, and what makes perovskites so unique in this regard? Right. So when you design a solar cell, you want it to do certain things really well. You want it to be able to carry those electrical charges to the electrodes very efficiently and get captured very efficiently. And so one measure that researchers look to to figure out how well this is occurring in all solar cells is something called a carrier diffusion length. By carrier, they're just meaning the electrical charges. And by diffusion length, they're asking, is how far do these charges go before something goes wrong, before they run into a defect and give up their energy as heat or what have you? So what's the typical length that they can travel? And so the longer it can go, the better, because that means there's a greater chance of it getting collected at the electrodes. So in some technologies, like organic photovoltaics or dye-sensitized solar cells, the common carrier diffusion length is around 10 nanometers. So what you have with the perovskites is they do about 100 times better, or can do right now, only after four years of development. And that means they can travel a micrometer, which is really quite good. And that means there's a greater likelihood that those charges will be collected. And that's one of the reasons folks think that they've already reached such high efficiency levels already. Another result of having a good carrier diffusion length is potentially the amount of voltage you can get out of these solar cells. So voltage is basically the, you can sort of think about it as, as the electric pressure. Like if your garden hose is on, is water just trickling out or does it have a lot of pressure behind it and it's just pouring forth? So it's somewhat akin to that in electricity. And so what they found out is that the perovskites have an impressive voltage potential, so they can actually put out a lot of electric voltage, which is great. That's one of the key things that you want. And not only that, but they have low losses. So they not only have the potential to create high voltages, but then they don't lose a lot of that energy in the process of getting it to the electrodes. So in an organic solar cell or a diasensitized solar cell, you might lose 
half of the energy or something like that, getting it to the electrode. Whereas in the perovskites, it's really similar to silicon, where you just lose only a, a small chunk of that voltage, which is something that is highly prized among solar researchers. So that kind of bodes well for the future in being able to do better and better and better. So what kind of hurdles still loom ahead before perovskites can sort of be incorporated into that solar cell industry? Yeah, a lot, actually. <laughs> so I don't want to pretend like this is a, is a field that has solved all of its problems. For starters, perovskites are unstable. So these perovskites are like salts. And so like table salt, if you put table salt in water, it dissolves. And so if perovskites are exposed to the moisture and air or, in fact, the oxygen and air as well, that can degrade them quite quickly. So you would have to come up with a really good way to seal these in some sort of laminated design or some way so that they have to be isolated from the environment. Another one is that these right now are all just research cells. These are tiny devices. These are most commonly posted stamp size. So you're going to have to figure out a way to grow these in high quality over meter square areas. And then another big one is that the current perovskites that are reaching these 15% efficiency marks, those have lead in them. And because these materials can dissolve very easily, you can sort of conceive of a situation where you have solar panels on your roof and something happens and the lead dissolves right out of them and goes onto your roof or into the soil or what have you, and lead is an environmental toxin. Truth be told, there's not a whole lot of lead in there, so a lot of folks think that this is a workable problem. For example, there's far more lead in lead-acid batteries than there ever would be in solar cells, even a large scale. So it's probably workable, but that too remains to be shown. Well, Bob Service, thanks for talking with me. You're welcome. Robert Service writes about the prospects for perovskite-based solar cells in a news focus this week. This Week in Science. On the site this week, you can read at the quantum level about room temperature quantum bit storage, or on the molecular level, about the architecture of a translation initiation complex. And in a news and analysis story this week, we learn about whether recent hints of dark matter may really be cosmic ray debris. You can check out all these stories and more at www.sciencemag.org. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, Science Now, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the mating habits of the sand flea. Sand fleas are native to the Caribbean, but they have been hopping rides on people's feet for centuries, and now they can be found on tropical beaches around the globe. Despite their long-standing interactions with our feet, there are still some mysteries out there about these little hoppers, like where they have sex. Right. Where does the sand flea have sex? And it turns out that the answer to that question came about from a researcher actually letting a sand flea burrow into her foot. <laughs> so what, how did that come about? <laughs> well, this was a researcher. She was studying an infection that the flea causes. Uh, she was doing some on-site research in Madagascar. And she noticed one day that a sand flea had burrowed into her foot. Now, most of us would pick that flea right out, which is actually the only treatment for these fleas right now. There's actually no drugs that will get rid of these fleas. But she said, you know, I'm studying these guys anyways. Why not? 
let it live in me for a little while, and I can study it more up close and personal. So how long did she expect this sand flea to actually hang out in her foot? Well, these sand fleas actually don't live very long. It's only the females that burrow into the skin, and they only live a few weeks. But this flea hung on for a couple of months, and the researcher's feet were starting to get itchy and painful, and she said, you know what? Probably a good idea to take this flea out. So she did take the flea out, but she continued to investigate the biology of this disgusting little insect. You can actually see a picture of it on the site. It doesn't look so disgusting. It looks actually kind of cool. It's a very tiny insect. It swells to about 10 millimeters in uh, diameter after it feasts on your blood for a while. Why do they think it stayed in her foot so long? Well, that was the big question. And it turns out what they hypothesize is that these females are actually hanging out waiting for a male to mate with them. There would have been the speculation whether these fleas actually mate outside of their host or when one of them is inside the host. And again, the males don't actually enter the host. And so what the researchers think is happening, or at least happened in this case, is the female was never fertilized, so she kept hanging out and living, waiting to be fertilized. And that suggests that the males actually fertilize the females while the females are embedded in their host, not when the two of them are not in the host. So this researcher had put socks on and shoes on after she got infested, which means that no male was able to fertilize the female. So this is only one case of one researcher and one sole sand flea that maybe just had some issues. Is there any way to generalize this? Well, we could let ourselves get infected by a lot more sand fleas and see what happens. But, but short of that, researchers will definitely want to confirm that this is happening on a larger scale than just with the one flea. Implications? Not much. Next up, we have a story on rearranging the big cat tree. According to DNA evidence, big cats, or pantherines, have been around for 10 or 11 million years, and at some point since then, they diverged into lions and tigers and snow leopards and other large cats. But some new evidence is pushing these dates around. When does the DNA evidence say that the large cats diverged? Well, sir, the DNA evidence suggests that animals, or at least the ancestors of animals like tigers, didn't really arise until about a couple million years ago. So this is a very recent, at least in evolutionary terms, divergence of the big cats. But as you mentioned, that's actually being contradicted or challenged, at least, by this new finding. The problem was that all this evidence is based on DNA, even the idea that the first pantherines emerged around 10, 11 million years ago. That's all based on DNA evidence. That's because the fossil evidence is pretty recent. The oldest pantherine fossil researchers have had up to now has only been about 3.8 million years old. And when you consider that these cats have been living up to 10 or 11 million years, that's not that informative. And that's where this new study comes in. Researchers that were digging around um, an area called the Tibetan Plateau, this team found some fossils that seemed sort of unusual, and they analyzed them, and they concluded that they were pantherine fossils. And what was even more interesting was that the fossils dated back from about four to six million years ago, so a lot older than any of the previously known pantherine fossils. And these fossils, importantly, came from Asia, not from East Africa, where the previous record-holding fossils had come from. That's important because scientists had thought that these big cats originated in Central Asia. But again, the fossil evidence up to now hadn't really supported that. 
What kind of cat did they find? How big was the cat that these fossils came from? They think it's a pretty close relative of today's snow leopard, but it was about 10% smaller. But otherwise, a lot of its features were very similar. And then when they combined the features of this animal with what they already knew about the big cat family tree, what that showed them is that this tree really had to be reshaped a bit. And in fact, this indicates that if this creature had emerged 46 million years ago, then big cats themselves may have emerged as long ago as 16 and a half million years ago, which is millions of years earlier than scientists had thought. It also indicates that these big cats had begun to diverge a lot earlier than scientists had thought. And that may be because during this time in the Himalayas, the Himalayas were just starting to come upward thanks to a shifting of tectonic plates. And this would have created a very diverse environment. And the type of environment that you would expect would potentially cause one or a couple species to split into many species. You have this diversification that's eventually going to lead to a lot of the big cats that we know today. Finally, we have a story on insights into the gambler's mentality. At base, addicted gamblers can't stop playing the game. But what makes someone a pathological gambler? Some of us gamble, and some of us gamble a lot. But gambling a lot doesn't make you a pathological gambler. What makes you a pathological gambler is not being able to stop. And that usually leads to pretty disastrous consequences. You lose your house, you lose your family. There was a recent story about a guy who charged into a casino with an axe and try to destroy a slot machine. These are the kinds of behaviors that are considered pathological. And in fact, they're so pathological that the DSM-5, which is sort of the Bible of psychiatry, has recently recognized pathological gambling as its first behavioral addiction. So this is a pretty serious addiction. The question for a long time has been, do gamblers gamble because they're hypersensitive to the rewards of money, like they just want money over all else? Or are they maybe less sensitive to some other rewards and gambling is just taking primacy over some other basic needs that we all have? In this study, they used gamblers and they had them do more than just self-reporting. They tried to capture this preference for gambling in their behavior. How did they do that? Well, they stuck them in an fMRI scanner and this scans brain activity and they basically had them push a button really rapidly. And the more rapidly they pushed this button, they could either see pictures of money or sexy pictures of women. I guess these were probably all guys in the study. Um, They were actually. And what they found was that the gamblers versus the controls were much more motivated to see those pictures of money than the sexy pictures. And what else they found when they looked at the fMRI scans was that these gamblers, these pathological gamblers, actually had diminished responses to the erotic pictures than they did to the pictures of money, which suggests there's something in the wiring of their brain which actually makes them less sensitive, uh, less seeking this desire to see erotic pictures where the researchers sort of equate with a desire for sex, a very basic need, versus a desire for money. They found these brain differences in the people who gamble at addictive levels. Could this potentially help with treating that? Well, right. And one potential treatment might actually be to boost these people's sensitivity to other basic needs, whether it's food or sex, and potentially have that override the desire for money, which could potentially curb the pathological gambling behavior. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? 
Well, Sarah, for Science Now, we've got a story about how planting roadside trees can help curb air pollution. Also a story about the evolution of Little Red Riding Hood and other folk tales. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about biology's answer to the physics archive. This is a preprint server of physics papers. Biologists want to create something analogous for biology papers. Also a story that deals with the fallout from Science Magazine's Sting operation conducted last month that outed some open access publishers for less than rigorous publishing practices. Turns out a few publishers are now feeling the brunt of that sting, and you can learn what is happening to them on the site. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. This week's Science Live is about neuroprosthetics, the interface between mind and technology and where that is going. And next week's Science Live is about splitting water to store energy. So be sure to check out all of these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site, Science Now. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the November 15th, 2013 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Christy Hamilton. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.